Oh, if you really believe today that there's nothing better than God, would you just give God a hand clap of praise? Nothing, nothing is better than him. If you have your Bibles, let's, uh, let's go to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 18 to 21 of Matthew chapter 1. I just love, love, love this time of year, Advent season, uh, where we are looking at the coming of Christ, reflecting on that. Um, all those prophecies in the Bible that, that foretold of the coming of Jesus Christ, and they were fulfilled. And here we are waiting on his second coming. And we have every confidence that just as his first coming was prophesied and fulfilled, his second coming will absolutely be fulfilled as well. And we look forward to that, especially in years like 2020. Matthew chapter 1, beginning verse 18, tonight we are going to start, today we're going to start a series in which we are uh, looking at aspects of uh, the coming of Jesus Christ, and I want to look at his virgin birth uh, this, uh, this day. Pick me up in verse 18, Matthew writes, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Will you pray with me one more time? Lord, we're grateful in this season of gift giving, and we're grateful for the gift of Jesus. He truly is the gift that keeps on giving. He gives new life. And so today, Lord God, we look to Jesus. We look to the virgin birth. We look to how we should respond to this incredible gift. I pray, Father, that you would give me freedom, that you'd give me clarity. Uh, I pray, Lord God, that, that your cross would be lifted high, your son Jesus would be made beautiful, and that, Lord God, he would be received. God, do all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ, we pray. Amen. True story. His name was Joshua Bell. And several years ago, on a cold January morning, Joshua Bell made his way to a metro station in Washington, D.C. He took out his $3.5 million violin. And for 45 minutes, he began to play this world-famous violinist, Pieces from Bach. While thousands of individuals in that cold metro station were hurrying up, trying to go about the day's affairs, getting to their jobs, thousands of people passed this world-famous violinist on their way to get to their jobs, not realizing that just two days before, this same guy, Joshua Bell, uh, had actually played at a theater in Boston. He headlined it and sold it out where the average ticket was $100. And here he is two days later, again in this cold metro station in Washington, D.C., $3.5 million violin, playing Bach, 
and people are just rushing by. In fact, in the 45 minutes, only six individuals actually stopped. And it was all, when it was all said and done, for 45 minutes, he collected $32. I think it's uh, more than obvious to say that these individuals, these thousands of individuals, had no idea of who was in their midst. And to a much greater degree, the same could be said about the 33 years in which Jesus Christ spent on earth. Here he is, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And for 33 years, most people had no clue what was in their midst. Most people continue to do life the way they had always done it, even in the presence of Jesus Christ. Few actually stopped to hear him, and fewer still actually allowed him to reorient their life. They did not grasp the power of the incarnation. When we talk about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that's, that's simply a, a sophisticated word to say that God became flesh. That's why one of the names for Jesus is Emmanuel. Again, God is with us. Tim Keller in his wonderful book, um, Hidden Jesus, talks about the importance of the incarnation. Look at what he says. Over the years, I've had fruitful dialogues with many members and leaders of other religions. I've asked them how in their faith the individual's relationship with God actually works. In general, these are the answers I received. Eastern religions do not grant the possibility of personal communion. God is in the end an impersonal force, and you can merge with that force but cannot have personal communication with it. For other faiths, God is personal, but too removed to be said to have intimate, loving communion with believers. I love this. Keller concludes by saying, I've become convinced that what makes the difference for Christianity is the incarnation. No other faith says God became flesh. And so if you're in this room or, or, or you know, you're with your device somewhere else, and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I, I want you to understand that what we're going to get into tonight and over the next couple of weeks is really one of the distinctives of Christianity. God became flesh. If God didn't become flesh, then he's kind of this far-off, unrelatable entity, impersonal force. And yet, if, if Jesus was merely the product of human agency, there's nothing supernatural uh, about him. He, he could be my counselor. He could be my advisor. But that's not enough for me to worship him. That's not enough to change my life. But if the incarnation is true, if God really came down, Emmanuel, God with us, if he really took on flesh and dwelt among us, then that changes everything. That's right, Tim Keller. The incarnation is one of the distinctive marks of Christianity. And here, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, deals with that. Now, of course, maybe you wouldn't even call yourself a Christian. You may be familiar with this story, though. Uh, one of the centerpieces of this story is Mary. The angel shows up and, um, and tells Mary, Mary, you're about to conceive. 
the father of this child is going to be the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk some more about that towards the end of our message. And, 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 and I want to be fair here. You know, we Protestants tend to make too little of Mary. It's unfortunate we only talk about her once a year. She's a, she's a woman who should be esteemed. But on the other hand, she shouldn't be worshipped. The reason why she shouldn't be worshipped, if you just look at Mary, I mean, she's not from some cosmopolitan city like, like Rome or Jerusalem. She's from some podunk village like Alabama. I mean, Nazareth. <laughs> I mean, here's Mary. She's, she's from the wrong side of the tracks. In fact, um, I want to be careful in how I say this. But in Isaiah chapter 53, uh, it says of Jesus, her son, that Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Now, just track with me here. You don't need to spend a day in seminary to follow this line of thinking. If Jesus didn't have an earthly biological father, but only an earthly biological mother, and if Jesus had mediocre to less than mediocre looks, then where did he get his looks from? Got them from Mary. See, what I'm, what I'm saying to you tonight is, if, if we're casting for a reality show, uh, the, the mother of the Messiah, chances are we're not going to pick Mary. She's not the most drop-dead gorgeous person in the world. She's not from the right zip code. She's everything you would say she shouldn't be. And yet God says, that's exactly the kind of person I want to use to carry out my huge assignments in this world. In fact, if you just track with the scriptures, God has an uncanny habit of using people whom the world looks over. I mean, King David, his own father doesn't think highly enough of him to bring him out to be anointed. He's considered some little runty individual who's out shepherding sheep. And yet God says, man looks on the outside, but I look at the heart. That's exactly the kind of person I want to use. And Paul would sum it up this way, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen to use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So if you're feeling marginalized, if you're feeling overlooked, if you're feeling unworthy, I want you to understand you're in good company. You're exactly the kind of person God delights in using. Because at the end of the day, it ain't about you. It's about his glory. And so God shows up to the angel and gives this assignment to Mary that she's been chosen to be the one who would birth the Messiah. And the question on the table is, why? Why was it necessary for God to take on flesh and dwell among us? Why is the incarnation necessary? Look at verse 21. Here's the answer. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Here it is. For he will save his people from their sins. Why was it necessary for God to take on flesh and come to earth? Answer, he didn't come because he wanted to take a closer look at what was going on. He, he didn't come because he was bored. He came to deal with the problem of sin. 
Romans chapter 5 says that sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and it infected everybody. In fact, David would say it this way. He says, behold, I was, I was born in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David says in so many words, uh, before I committed the act of sin, I, I came into this life a sinful person marred by sin. And sin has wreaked havoc. Like the pandemic we're in, sin has touched every single continent. Sin has touched every aspect. In fact, Paul would say in Romans that all of creation groans because of sin. In fact, friends, um, I'm going to guess that, that most of your jobs exist because of sin. I mean, I'm here as a preacher today, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ because of sin. If you're a doctor, you have sin to thank. Our bodies are wasting away because of sin. If you're a lawyer, for sure you exist because of sin. If you're a counselor or a, or a therapist helping people to deal with the brokenness and dysfunction in their lives and relationship, your profession exists because of sin. Sin colors every nook and cranny of our lives and of our universe. Why did Jesus come to earth? Why did God take on flesh and dwell among us? He came, Matthew 1, 21 says, to deal with the problem of sin. Growing up, um, this is a bit of a risque illustration, but growing up outside of athletic events, my dad never came to our schools unless there was a problem that was not working itself out. So when Crawford Loritz came to school in the middle of the day, you knew it was a problem because he had to wade into something that, that just wasn't getting solved on his own. Uh, I remember my, uh, my kid brother, uh, his uh, first year in middle school, uh, as was the habit back then when we were growing up, you tend to get bullied first year of middle school. And so my brother comes home one day really sad and my, and my dad's like, Brendan, what's wrong? He goes, man, this kid keeps hitting me upside the back of the head and, 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 and the teacher's not doing anything. My dad's like, well, we'll tell the teacher and the, and the teacher will fix it. And next day my brother comes home looking sad and, and dad's like, what's wrong? And my brother says, man, I did what you told me to do and the teacher's not doing anything. And dad says, okay, go back to school. And this goes on for several days. And finally, finally, one morning, my father wakes my brother up. He's, my dad's dressed in a coat and tie, um, which lets you know something's about to go down. And he says, uh, Brendan, we're going to school. So they hop in the car, they go to school. Dad walks into the principal's office, demands a meeting with the principal and, and with the teacher and introduces himself as Dr. Crawford Loritz. Now, when dad throws the doctor title out, um, that means something's about to go down. And, um, and, and sure enough, the teacher and the principal give him an audience. And dad says to the teacher and principal right in front of uh, my, my brother, his son, dad goes, look, in the Loritz household, we really value the educational experience. And anytime that gets disrupted, we get really concerned and we really want to work with you all. And I understand there's a bully picking on my son and, 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 and my son, I trusted him to come to you, the teacher, to do something and you didn't do anything about it. Is that right? And she kind of acquiesced to it. And so then my dad turns to my brother and says, here's the risque part. He says, son, since the teacher isn't protecting you, the next time that kid puts his hands on you, I want you to take your fist and run it through the back of his head. Now, that's not biblical advice, and you should know my dad's a preacher, and he needed to repent of that, but there was a problem that needed to be worked out. 
And it took my dad stepping in to that situation. In a greater degree, Jesus came to earth because there was a problem called sin that was not working itself out. It was not getting better. Jesus came to earth, put on the coat and tie of humanity, stepped into the principal office of this earth, died on a cross so that you and I could live victorious lives over sin. That sin is not to master us. Satan is not to bully us. As believers, we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory because Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has conquered sin, death, and the grave. That's why he came. But how did he come? How did he come? He came through this thing called the virgin birth. Look again at verse 20. Speaking of Joseph, it says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He came through the virgin birth. Now, exactly what is the virgin birth? One of my favorite scholars is a guy by the name of, um, uh, of Wayne Grudem, and he says this about the virgin birth. He says, when we speak of the humanity of Christ, it is appropriate to begin with a consideration of the virgin birth of Christ. Scripture clearly asserts that Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit and without a human father. It's very important. When Jesus came to earth, he came via the virgin birth. Why? Because Jesus needed to be fully God, fully man, in one person without mixture. I'll give that to you again. Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, in one person without mixture. He's not 70% God, 30% man. He's not 50-50. He's fully God, fully man, in one person without mixture. Because he had a biological mother, that makes him fully human. We see the humanity of Jesus Christ throughout the Gospels. If you read the first four books of the, of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see his humanity. The fact that he eats tells us he get, gets hungry. On the cross, he says, I thirst. It's his humanity speaking. He, he got thirsty. He had emotions. John eleven thirty five. 35, I'd make sure we, we had these uh, Bible memorization uh, contests at VBS when I was growing up, and I'd get them all together. John eleven thirty five. 35, it's the first verse we're going to memorize together as a class, shortest verse in the Bible. I had no idea of how profound a verse it is. It simply says, Jesus wept. It shows his humanity. Not only that, but, but we see the humanity of Jesus as he experiences pain. His humanity is all over the place. Now, why is that important? His humanity is important for many reasons. One is it makes him relatable. It makes him relatable. Hebrews 4 says it this way. Will you look at it with me? Speaking of the humanity and the relatableness of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect 
has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I mean, that's amazing. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. My wife's a broadcast journalism major from Columbia, and she, she worked uh, for a time for ABC News and, and, uh, and other news outlets, and she loves sports, and whenever we watch uh, a game together, um, you know, she, she knows one of my pet peeves is uh, sideline announcers of sporting events who never played the game. Bugs me to no end. When, when, when I see someone reporting on the game, I, I want to know that, that you played, that you tackled somebody, that you hit a home run, that you, you did a backflip. Why? Because there's a sense of conviction. There's a, there's a relatableness. There's a connection that you have to the game. In the same way, when it comes to the game of life, the Bible is clear. We don't just simply serve a God who sits up high and looks down low. No, he came down low. He can sympathize with our weaknesses in every way, shape, and form. You know, as a black man, that means a lot to me. Because as a minority, I've experienced discrimination. But Jesus, in his humanity, as a Jew, was a minority. And Jesus experienced discrimination. He can relate to me. For, for you women who maybe have experienced uh, oppression from men who stewarded their, 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 their power and position in awful ways, Jesus can nod his head in solidarity. He says, I know what it's like to, 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 to be oppressed by, by people who misuse their, their power as well. For all of us, when we struggle with sin, Jesus Christ says, I, I know what it's like to be tempted. He says, I can actually relate to you. That's that kind of God that I want to serve. We serve a God who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tempted in every way, yet without sin. Why was he without sin? Secondly, because not only was he fully man, he was, he was also fully God. Fully God. Now, now some of you might be going, well, wait a minute, Brian, I, I thought you... I thought you quoted that verse from Psalm 51 where David says, Behold, I was, I was born in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. I thought you were talking about everybody since Adam, how sin entered the world through one man. It infected everybody. So doesn't that mean if Jesus was fully human, that he was born with a sin nature? No. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says something about Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus was the last Adam. Now why is that important? Jesus' humanity was actually patterned after Adam's humanity. Now, what's the difference between Adam's humanity and ours? One thing. Adam did not come into this world with a sin nature. He came with free will so he could make choices, but he did not come with a sin nature. That came after he sinned, and it was passed on to everyone except for Jesus Christ, which is why he is called the last Adam. Now, why is that important when we talk about his deity? God cannot dwell in sin. So in order for Jesus to be fully God and fully man in one person without sin, his humanity had to have been patterned after Adam's with no sin nature. And of course, the Gospels show the full-on deity of Jesus. His godness is constantly on display. 
as he walks on water or, 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 or he calms the storms. We see his godness as he raises people from the grave like Lazarus. We see his godness as he feeds multitudes with a few pieces of fish and a few loaves of bread. His deity is constantly on display. Why is this important? It's important for us because Jesus is so awesome that in his humanity, he can relate to my humanity, but he is God enough to overcome my weaknesses. It's amazing. Jesus can relate, but because he was God, in order to be a sacrifice, he had to be a perfect sacrifice. So he came in his humanity as a sacrifice, but his godness made him a perfect sacrifice, making him an acceptable substitute for our sins. Don't you see, friends, how the incarnation of Jesus Christ is absolutely everything? Now, if I were to stop right here, I think I would have just given you some good information. But the question on the table is, what do we do with this fully God fully man and one person without mixture. Isn't that the question? So what? What do we do with him? We do with him what Mary did with him. It's important that you understand that the age of betrothal, of betrothal on average for, for women in Jewish culture at the time was between the ages of 12 to 14. So don't picture Mary as some 20-something. If we're just sticking with the culture of the times... She's somewhere between 12 to 14, and Joseph is somewhere 18, 19, 20, somewhere in there. The angel shows up, and it says that Mary is betrothed to, to, uh, to Joseph. Well, what does it mean to be betrothed? Betrothed isn't, isn't marriage, but it's a lot stronger than engagement. In fact, the betrothal period, which typically lasted for a year, it was so strong that it actually took a certificate of divorce to break it. In fact, if a woman was caught having relations during the betrothal period, the law said she had to be stoned. Get the picture. Angel shows up and says, Mary, we've got an assignment for you. You're going to be the mother of the Messiah. Well, who's the daddy? It ain't Joseph. It's the Holy Spirit. Now, if I'm Mary, I'm pressing fast forward right now, imagining a conversation I'm going to have with my betrothed. Uh, Joe, I'm pregnant. Obviously, you ain't the daddy. You ain't going to believe this one. It's the Holy Spirit. She probably understands that Joseph ain't going to buy it. And because of that, for her to say yes to the angel... For her to put her yes on the table is literally to trust God with her life. We call that faith. Look at what she says in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Faith. What do we do with the incarnation of Jesus Christ? It ain't supposed to live here. It's supposed to live here and here. It's faith. And faith ain't faith unless it's risk. Faith is not faith unless it's risk. 
It doesn't take faith for me to say two plus two equals four, mathematical fact. It doesn't take faith for me to jump off this stage and say I'll end up on the ground. That's the law of gravity. But it does take faith to say, I'm going to trust you, God, with my life, and I'm going to put it all on the table, venture out into the unknown, because I trust the object of my faith, which is you. If Mary doesn't say yes, we're not talking about her. There's no legacy because there's no faith. Stories told of a man who was walking through the woods one day, just enjoying God's creation. He was really enamored with it, really distracted because the next thing he knows, he falls over the edge of a cliff. On his way hurling down, at the last minute, he reaches out and grabs a branch that was protruding out the side of a cliff, and this branch kind of breaks his fall and suspends him in midair. He's dangling there, sweating, and he's yelling, help, help, somebody, please help me. All of a sudden, a voice from heaven says, I can help you. The man responds, who is it? The voice from heaven says, it's God. God responds by saying to this man, do you believe I can help you? The man says, absolutely. Will you trust me, God says, absolutely, the man responds. Finally, God says, okay, since you trust me, let go of the branch. Man pauses, looks around, says, is anybody else up there? (laughs) At the end of the day, he didn't want to let go of his stick. He didn't want to let go of what was comfortable. He wanted to play it safe. What's your stick? What are you holding on to? I'm convinced that so many Christians today structure their lives in such a way that we just don't need to walk by faith unless we're forced to. If you want real legacy, if you want real meaning, if you want real significance, you're going to have to trust God. Trust him like a 12 or 13 or 14-year-old girl who said on the front end, I don't know all the X's and O's and how all this is going to work out, but, but I trust God. For some of you tuning in, either in this room or wherever you may be with your device, your first act of letting go is entering into relationship with this Emmanuel, this God who is with us. Maybe you're tuning in because you're acknowledging the way you've been navigating life has not been working out. And maybe God has allowed you to come to the end of yourself to say, will you trust me and let go? It's the acknowledgement that that I am a sinner, I am a flawed person. God is a holy God, and my sin separates me from a relationship with him. That's the bad news. The good news is Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, died on the cross for our sins. And on his way to the cross in John 14, he says, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You can't work your way into God's good graces. You can't give enough money into God's good graces. 
simply begins by you letting go and trusting Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And the moment you do that, the moment you exercise that faith, God says, I've got you. The writer of Hebrews would say it this way, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to him must first believe that he exists. Will you take a risk? Others of us are followers of Jesus Christ, so we've, we've made that step. But, but I believe many of us are sitting in this room or wherever we may be with our devices, and we know that there's a, there's a greater step of faith God's calling us to. We heard Pastor Travis earlier on talking about a step of generosity. Generosity is not something we do to get into God's good graces. Christianity is having received the generosity of God and we respond to that vertical generosity by being generous with everything he's put in our hands. Maybe for some of us, God is saying, I I need you to take an extra step of faith by being more generous with the resources I've placed in your hands. It could go in many different directions. Maybe he's calling you to, to make a major career move. Whatever it may be, God is saying, trust me. Trust me with that family. Trust me with that relationship. Trust me with that job. But you got to let go of that stick. I got you.